0: This is the longest I've ever gone between podcasts. I may not know how to do this anymore. So if I start asking questions in Spanish, Scott, you can just kill my mic. Okay, let's go. Welcome back. It's episode 147. Of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast, coming to you, as we always do, from the faculty lounge of the F. Stephen u School of Law, where we do teach critical race theory, but it's just the name for John's course on Mario Kart. I'm your host, Troy Senek, former White House speechwriter, co founder of Kite and Key, and guy who learned the hard way that Peloton frowns on the use of motorcycles. And I am joined, as always, by the bebop and rock steady of the conservative legal movement that is a very generation-specific reference. They are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. And Phyllis, you know, I am occasionally asked how much time we spend together off the show. The answer is not all that much because we're usually all in different places, but we do stay in touch between shows. And that sometimes is about serious matters of law or policy. Sometimes it's pure frivolity. And sometimes, as in the past few weeks, it's Richard feeling like it's vitally important that we all know about his struggles trying to return an iron to Amazon. Why did we get eight emails from you on this topic? <laughs> well,
1: because in fact, it turns out to be an interesting and happy story. Uh, we got this thing. We've got two instead of one. My wife sent it back with the return label. And the next day, what we do is we get an announcement that the label was invalid, that you had to wait three days, and that they're not going to give you a credit because you're supposed to use the FedEx label. Uh, so I'm sitting there trying to compose my class action consumer suit, saying this is the most outrageous thing that I ever heard. Uh, but then it's a happy story. Amazon must have gotten a torrent complaint about its rather high-handed strategy. And so uh, a day or so later, we got another email saying they would take the packages back after all. I think it's actually a very nice story uh, because what it does show you is that even large corporations like Amazon do worry about their reputation. I won't tell you about my various other consumer struggles because they're still pending and I don't know whether they'll be happy (laughs) or not. Uh, uh, But I think that the Supreme Court is probably more instant. But the lesson to go and its son that Lena Khan should learn is that when you're talking about a company like Amazon, even dealing with pipsqueaks like individual consumers buying irons and the like, they understand that if they do something which is widely understood and perceived to be unfair, they're going to pay a very heavy reputational price. And I, I give them hats off for making the correction. What I really want to know is whether they fired the guy who made the original decision to stiff all of their customers on the returns. End of story. <laughs>
2: This well, is not. This is not plausible for many many reasons. But the first one, so It's just just proof. Not this, plausible. This, this is not plausible because one, <laughs> you got two irons. You ordered one iron. You paid for one iron. They sent you two. No, we and paid you for sent, two.
1: As it turned out
2: you sent one of them. I have no idea how
1: these forms could kind of lead up on you, oh, and you press you, a button and you,
2: you yeah, and you hit you it in wanted the wrong one, way. by mistake. You got two because you oh. put two down in the quantity. This so is this is a, oh, a wow. an oh. error. Uh, yes, yes. So it I, out Amazon a is blameless. Error. Amazon is this great American <laughs> no, company, no, no. Amazon source of massive has a profits and efficiencies. <laughs> did you and look, I mean, did not account for you ordering five irons at once. <laughs> well, then we would have had to return <laughs> four. But this
1: is essentially the same thing that made Sears and Montgomery Ward famous. If you recall, back in the 19th century, when they wanted to get people to buy mail, the only way they can induce them to do this, they give a money back guarantee, no questions asked. If you return, Amazon is under the same principle only in cyberspace. And when you start to violate that principle with some kind of crazy story, it's going to cost you enormously. And I, mean, I, I, think, think, it's gar- I don't think it's extremely important.
2: Uh, I don't think it's an any no questions asked guarantee for returns to Amazon because when you return things, I have the other reason it's not plausible because this is at the end of a two day. F- of my feeding frenzy on Amazon. Cause if you're not a regular Amazon user, you should know, you wouldn't know this, but for the last two days has been Amazon prime days and where prime everything's Day, really cheap. Yeah. And I've been buying like crazy. Like you gotta, I mean, there are all kinds of weird, interesting products come up for sale that never come up for sale. Just ended. It just ended. <laughs> yeah. But no, this is my question. It's like, if you want to return something, they actually ask you a bunch of questions about why you're returning it, what is it, and if the, if there's a mistake that's your fault they don't, I don't do think that you have the right to return purchases,
1: it. john uh, look it's if you're trying to make special deals it's like going into a department store you get something on sale. generally, the return policy doesn't apply for sale, what it does with respect to regular prices, and that's exactly the same kind of thing the The lesson one has to learn is to what extent the standard situations with respect to re- returns and distant transactions actually matter. And it's a very, very important topic for a company because reputation is what drives this. It's not reports to the consumer fraud or anything else. And my guess is when they basically announced that you had to wait three days before you returned it, uh, they got a ton of rough criticism. And so I think, in fact, it kind of shows how markets work. And I hope Lena Kahn no. will take due note of this. And when she does her next Amazon attack, will defend the company against certain kinds of
2: scurrilous <laughs> you, what, Richard, attacks. what you should have done is you should have taken second undesired iron gone out onto the streets of New York and sold it for cash for more than you paid Amazon
0: for. it. John, you've never sales heard tax. of
1: Ronald Coase, a blessed memory. <laughs> Somehow were, because the transactions cost would exceed the fair market value of the iron, which is why they not, have it. Not when you don't pay sales. T-
0: not when you don't pay New York sales okay. tax. You okay, don't. but you know what, John, John, I mean, Richard may have his struggles. At least they're ephemeral. Our friend, John Yu, however has an existential hardship, namely that he is from Philadelphia. Don't worry, he's tagged and we can track his movements. But, John, you, I'm are there right coming, now. you are coming to us from Philly for this installment of the show. And given your constellation of interests, I can't believe I've never asked you this before. But the great debate in your home city, of course, is over whether Pat's or Gino's makes the better Philly cheesesteak. You must have an opinion on this.
2: Yeah, but why is this? Why is there a problem? This has been going on for decades.
0: No, no, no. the The problem was the fact that you are from Philadelphia. Oh, oh, well, yeah, yeah. yeah. That mean, was the existential is... problem. Yeah.
2: Well, you know, there's a helicopter. Hold on a second. There's a helicopter going over. No doubt, Proving looking for point. me as you just sick them on me. <laughs> but I, I hate to say it, but even though I know there's. Uh, schools of thought behind each one. I like them both equally. But if I had to go to only one, I would go to Gino's because Gino's at least is an Italian name. And I would favor that over Pat's, which I assume is short for Patrick. And I don't see how the Irish got a foothold into
0: making cheesesteaks. Follow-up question, is, is, <laughs> is cheese whiz acceptable? Oh, but they both use cheese whiz. Yes, but no, this, he, is, this is a live debate. Is cheese was acceptable? No, what other cheese would there be? Okay, I don't understand. Is a John Kerry order with Swiss
2: cheese acceptable? Oh, of course not. So this is the great thing if you go down there to Pat and Gino's. Uh, as you know, in 2004, Kerry showed up. Somehow he won Pennsylvania anyway, and he ordered a <laughs> cheesesteak with Swiss cheese. So even though he's got, you know, these uh, you know, Italian guys, they're Democrats through and through. Nevertheless, they took a picture of Kerry with the cheesesteak so you can see the Swiss cheese just to mock him. And so everyone who comes to Pat and Gino sees this picture and we all enjoy making fun of John Kerry, which is a nonpartisan, a bipartisan source of amusement.
0: (laughs) All right, boys. Well, um, it's Supreme Court decision time. So let's just do sort of a whirlwind tour through some of the opinions that have been handed down. A few of these we previewed last time. And I'll start you off with the NCAA case about compensation for college athletes. This was a unanimous decision written by Justice Gorsuch. And a lot of the coverage has been imprecise about what was actually at stake here. So, Richard, the ruling here was that the NCAA could not prohibit schools from providing education-related benefits for their athletes. So this did not get to issues like Can they do endorsement deals? Can they get paid? Uh, But there were suggestions, especially from Justice Kavanaugh, that this could lay the predicate for action on that front in the future. And you've got certain states that have already taken steps to open that up. Um, Unsurprisingly, states that tend to play host to SEC schools, and it's being considered at the federal level. So, Richard, what is this ruling actually going to mean for the future of college sports? Well, I mean, we really
1: don't know, but my prediction is as follows. If you start to say that you're going to tamper with the structure, which the NCAA had put into place for many years, um, you're doing it on antitrust grounds, which never quite fit the the standard antitrust rules tend to work best for profit-making institutions that are independent and in competition with one another. These are teams that are in a league, and they can't survive unless everybody else survive, and they have to have a huge amount of common infrastructure. Uh, so what you do is you have to tread a uh, calf So if you had just treated this as a naked, ordinary antitrust case, you'd start be thinking treble damages, and you dissolve the whole cartel. But when you start to say, aha, uh-huh, what they have to do is to allow competition on on basically compensation, but not about other issues. What they're already doing is trying to make some kind of an adjustment. And then when they actually sent the thing back again, and they were even a little bit more diffident, and they say, look, I mean, if there's something here that we're missing and you want to take into account, uh, please do. But by and large, it was a pretty solid uh, rule of reason kind of case trying to trade this off against that. Uh, but in the political realm, it's going to read very differently. Uh, people are going to say the NCAA is no longer invulnerable and that the issues of endorsements and you know rights to promote your own name and things of that sort are very much on the table. And so what happens is you're going to see all sorts of efforts by states to try to limit what's going on in terms of what the NCAA can do. There are going to be conflicts across states uh, in the way in which this happens, And there's going to be a long period before it starts to shake out. In the end, this thing is sufficiently complicated uh, that one hopes that they will come up with some kind of a omnibus legislative deal that will bind all parties for all time and that that will withstand what's going to take place in the next round of scrutiny. Uh, But I think what this decision did is it tried to quiet the confusion in this particular area. It moved gently in that direction. But I think in the long run, uh, we're going to start to see a lot more action taking place in this particular space because everybody kind of senses that the NCAA is vulnerable and it doesn't have its previous kind of self-assurance on everything. And since there's so much money at stake and the property rules are so indefinite, you could expect all sorts of unanticipated maneuvers to take place in the next month. So stay tuned. And remember, all I predicted is I don't know what's going to happen. So in that
0: sense, I really can't be wrong. <laughs> John, uh, you want to you add on the NCAA case or do you want to go to the cheerleader?
2: Oh. Gosh, that's a tough one.
0: <laughs> but No, I, actually, I think Richard is... Um, being
2: unduly cautious and modest here, I think the NCAA is toast. They are so toast. I think it's unbelievable. First, the court said, "This is a big business, right? This is this is not colleges and universities getting together to you know like make the curriculum standard. They are running huge billion dollar businesses here." And Justice Gorsuch's opinion points out that I think. Basketball and I couldn't believe this actually. The NCAA basketball the television rights are alone are a billion dollars, and then you can imagine it must be way more for college football at the local and national level. So one, they're big misses. Two, they're a monopolist. They are the, they control the market for college athletics. So and then three, what other field could you get away with? Everyone who a monopolist deciding hey we're not going to pay anybody any salaries so uh, you know think about this if it were applied to professors there's no reason it couldn't be right professors are part of the enterprise of running a college suppose college and university said hey let's get together and just set a uniform price for professors for, throughout the country or god forbid even worse let's let's pay them zero <laughs> let's treat them just like the student athletes and pay them absolutely nothing I don't think, I, I, that, I think that's very much what the antitrust laws were about. Then the other thing I really loved about it, the opinion is wonderful to read because it has a history in it of college sports. And what became apparent to me after reading it was that certain schools like Alabama are really just professional sports with a little schoolhouse attached. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, the amount of money that's they were giving the salaries that the coaches, this is the other interesting thing, because they can't compete. For student athletes, the colleges are still spending money. They still want to win. So they just spend the money on coaches. There are assistant coaches on football teams that make over a million dollars, and they spend it on gyms and facilities and you know, anything else. But worth the every students. penny, John? Oh, are you kidding?
1: Yeah, but John, let me just comment on your your faulty antitrust analysis. (laughs) Even if you're a monopolist, you still face all sorts of problems, and a monopolist that offers zero pay to professors is going to get zero kinds of people. Uh, The non-cash benefits that are given to these particular players, the scholarships they get, the opportunities they get, mean that it's a winning deal. The real question is whether or not they should get more, not that they're going to get nothing. And the real worry that you have about this is there'll be a bidding offer dominant players, and so that Alabama would be even more dominant against other people. The exact issue actually arose with scholarships for academics, and there was a uh, little meeting somewhere, and somebody who was part of the cartel in which they limited the amount of money they could offer to star students happened to sit next to somebody in the Justice Department, and a big suit followed. Uh, But the problem that you have is that everybody can bid for the strongest students. They're all going to end up at three or four institutions, and so the balance is going to be lost. So this is not an unambiguous good. Um, and it's certainly not the kind of situation that you talked about. They could give me a zero salary if it turns out that they gave me a living allowance to behalf of Or, a million you know, dollars Richard, they could
2: just give you like 25 irons a month.
1: <laughs> well, they can give me no, 25 irons a month. <laughs> That's right. And I could eat all of them and sell them to you. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean it, 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 we do not know how this is going to play out. I, generally speaking, my view is, if you have stable and successful institutions, you don't know why they're working. You don't mess with them. Uh, the Supreme Court used a rule of reason analysis, which is less deferential uh, in this particular case, and we'll see whether or not my gloomy prognostications will come true or not. My view is this is going to be sufficiently open-ended that um, there are going to be some unhappy consequences I mean, uh, that nobody. So let
2: can me face. let me ask. Let me. I, I buy your point that it's different than say steel or, you know. The iron. Let's keep it on irons. Went to irons. So, I mean, there's a market for that. You wouldn't want all the iron makers to collude, set prices, set wages, and so on. Yeah. So, the, your point is that college sports are different because you need a certain range of equality so that the games are competitive, right? Yeah. So, if they weren't competitive, if if the best players just went for a few teams, then people would lose interest, and the market will go down. So, one issue I have with that is there's a lot of good college football players. And they're not all going to go to Alabama. There's a lot more of them because we see that right now. Even if Alabama could have the top 64, Troy will correct us because he he knows these things. But if there's like 64 players on a college football team, there's still so many more that they're all not going to be at Alabama. Uh, And then two, we still love losing teams. Like I still love my losing. I mean, I'm from Philadelphia for Christ's sake. I'm still loyal to my losing teams. (laughs) I don't want them to be the Yankees. You you, Richard are a fan of the Yankees, but I'm a fan of the Philadelphia Phillies. I like them losing 100 years in a row. Just when they win that one year of World So that's much more meaningful to me than being a Yankees fan and having win a after win a car. after a win. They haven't
1: won in ten yet, John. When they <laughs> rate college football athletes, they rate them down. I mean, every position gets people rated one to maybe two or three hundred. The difference between a number one rating and a number fifty rating and that stuff is simply enormous. Uh, because what you have to do is to ask how many of these guys are going to make it into the professional draft, and barring all no, in- my points, different. It's still people.
2: Still love watching college yeah, but they, sports. They, they will love watching it. Sports. I mean,
1: the last two football games I went to forty-five years ago both ended in the same <laughs> identical score of sixty-nine to
2: nothing. Well, that's because uh, it was I, University I, of Chicago's finest. Well, that was one was the
1: University of Chicago. The other was the <laughs> well, University of Indiana. But I mean, I my
2: high school team could beat the University of Chicago. <laughs> Not anymore, guy. <laughs> Not anymore. Well, that's because they got that, rid that's of slander.
0: Slander, yeah. but oh, we digress. It. John, to to your point earlier, and then I'll transition us over. I had to look this up to make sure I had the number right. But ESPN a couple of years ago put together a map, which you can – this is all over the internet. And the number is 40. 40 is the number of states in which the highest paid public employee – uh, is a coach in an NCAA yeah. college program. So, um, on a kind of related topic, I'm going to move you over to. We got a ruling just this morning. Another case that we talked about before. This is the cheerleader from Pennsylvania who was disappointed that she got relegated to the uh, relegated to the JV squad. Posted a vulgar message on Snapchat saying, <laughs> essentially, "F cheer." Someone takes a that screenshot. That would itself
2: would be a great cheer, by the way.
0: <laughs> Someone takes a screenshot, shares it with a coach she gets suspended. And her family sues, saying she was off campus when she posted this, and thus it is beyond the reach of school discipline. This is a First Amendment violation for the school to discipline her this way. And the court agreed, almost unanimously. This was an 8-to-1 decision written by Justice Breyer, but as always in an 8-to-1 case, the most interesting part is the 1, which in this case was your old boss, was Justice Thomas. And his argument in dissent was that this represented a departure from the historical standards that would apply here. And he wrote, this is a brief quote from his dissent, the purpose and effect of the student speech was to degrade the program in cheerleading staff in front of other pupils, thus having a direct and immediate tendency to subvert the cheerleading coach's authority. As a result, the coach had authority to discipline the student, close quote. In other words, yes, this is off campus, but it's so directly related to school discipline that it's fair game. What do you make of this dissent?
2: So first, I want to just express amazement. Still, that there are cheerleading teams with competitions and coaches. And now under my reading of the NCAA case, we can all pay them what they deserve in the market. And we're going to (laughs) have huge, huge competition for cheerleading coaches. But anyway, the the serious point is um, this is actually, this case uh, is interesting because it exemplifies this bigger, I think, lesson from this term and all the cases that I think this is the first time I've ever seen it in my life, which is a conservative's, have the clear majority on the court. The interesting opinions are not by liberal justices anymore. In fact, they're almost like an afterthought. The interesting things to read are the debates that are taking place between the conservatives. And so if you look at this case, it's actually um, six in the majority. There's two justice concurrence, Alito and Gorsuch and then Thomas in dissent. Gorsuch, Alito and Thomas actually agree on a different framework for how to analyze this, they just differ on the outcome. And so this is actually another example where you see Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas, who are the more conservative members of the court now, on going off in one direction. And you see Barrett and Kavanaugh sticking with the chief justice. And then I think this is what's happening over and over again. And then the liberals are joining on with Chief Justice Roberts because they want to have some influence. Um, and you can see it in a case like this. Uh, so that's, that's one. And the, so then the second thing is what is really going on here is um, Thomas Alito and Gorsuch do not want to really take a very broad free speech rights here with school. Um, but they've been trying to figure out why is it that free speech rights are reduced when you're in school, when what this cheerleader said would clearly be uh, and obviously would be protected without any question if she were an adult if she were not in school and she was just suppose she was just a parent saying this about the children leading school. So about the children. So their argument, uh, all three of them, their argument is that the reason why schools have this right is because they have in a way been delegated the right from their parents to control the speech of the children. And so their argument is a really interesting argument. I mean, I just, you know, hadn't thought about it too deeply before. Their argument is um, under the law children actually don't have much free speech rights because they're under the control of their parents legally. The parents can decide legally how much speech the children can uh, exercise. I know this is news to you, Troy, because God knows what you were posting on the internet as a child without your parents knowing. It was but, not great. <laughs> in fact, it's basically what you've been doing. You're, you made a career out of it. Think about it. <laughs> so, but just one last point. So their argument is the only reason the school here has any right at all to control the speech of the child is because the parents have that right. And they kind of gave it to the school when the children, when they chose to put their kids in the school. And then the last interesting point, and again, this is the difference is should we still uh, subject that school to tough scrutiny? Because now parents don't have the right to refuse to send you to school, the school, the, you know, the government coerces families basically in a lot of States, including Pennsylvania effectively coerces them to go to public school unless they take some you know, p- private school option. And so that might actually change the speech analysis. It might actually mean that uh, the government has to be far, far more respectful of free speech rights than the parents would be because the government forced the parents to hand the kids over to them.
1: Um, look, I have a slightly different take on this. Uh, Justice Breyer is the great balancer, and he tried to pull that act off here. and One has to decide whether he's right or wrong. And his attitude is, look, I'm going to tell you the things that I'm really going to deal with. If you see somebody getting online and making physical threats uh, uh, to essentially um, damage or to hurt a teacher or a fellow student or to blow up the building, that kind of stuff I'm going to stop. And I would stop that, of course, with an adult. But his attitude with respect to obscenity and so forth is that's just ordinary English at this particular point in time. And um, I don't think anybody else even thinks a second of it you see all these words in the new yorker in the new york times you never did it 20 years ago so screw all of this stuff it's just not a big enough deal to start to worry We
2: never would have said screw on this podcast I know. 10 years I'm ago. trying to be extremely
1: <laughs> delicate because I don't wish to offend the tender ears of an audience who does not familiar with all of these obscenities. Um, but that's <laughs> the. I think that's the kind of attitude that he's starting to take. And it's also, it made a difference. It was on Snapchat and it disappeared after an hour. He tries to take everything into account, but as is always the case with the balancing test, sooner or later, there's going to be a kind of a mushy middle. Um, and I have some sympathy for Breyer because I think he's certainly right in the cases where uh, what you would want to do is to, shall we say, um, uh, try to threaten the school. But suppose it turned out what the student said was no obscenity, but announced, I think that the administration is totally craven under these circumstances because they don't have respect for people. Uh, They don't care about merit. They tend to be biased for reasons of race, gender, and so forth. Under those circumstances, um, uh, would he uh, say that it's fully protected? I think the answer is yes. But I also think that Justice Thomas would start to say that it's yes, even though that's also a direct challenge to the authority in question. And in many ways, rather than being a moment of exasperation, it's a reasoned challenge which might make people more nervous. And so the next sentence they say is because you should see what they did to Susie or to Charlie. And, you know, this is just part of a pattern and practice of terrible behavior. At that particular point, you get an emergency meeting of the school board to see whether or not there was some form of gender inequity out of all of this. Uh, but I think that those things would be protected. And if that's going to be protected, and then a harmless obscenity, at least in this current world, which has much less consequences, is probably going to be um, protected as well. I wish they had gone into some of those other examples, uh, but they did not.
0: Richard, let me ask you about another case that we previewed right. on a past episode. That This was the adoption case out of Philadelphia. So the issue here was that the Philadelphia City Council had passed an anti-discrimination resolution, which called on the city's Department of Human Services, which works on foster care placement, to stop making referrals to Catholic social services because they wouldn't place children with same-sex couples. (laughs) Catholic social services then sued on First Amendment grounds, saying they're being forced to choose between their faith and, and carrying out their mission on foster care. Interesting outcome here in that the court ruled unanimously that this was, in fact, a First Amendment violation. Mm -hmm. However, they also ruled six to three that that did not necessitate revisiting Employment Division versus Smith, which is one of the major precedents here. Justice Alito was one of the three dissenting there. And he said that as a result of how narrow this ruling was, the opinion, this is the kind of great quote, might as well be written on the dissolving paper sold in magic shops. So um, unpack this for us. Maybe start by reminding our audience what Employment Division did and then why it's so important that the court did not get to it here.
1: All right. Well, I mean, speaking about all-time blunders of Anthony and Scalia, I would think that Smith is pretty high on that list. And it was a decision in which it turned out that there was an employee working for a uh, government agency who had smoked peyote, and it turned out that this was a violation of the criminal law. Uh, the prosecutor refused to prosecute on the grounds that if you're doing this as part of a religious ceremony, you're not any great threat to me. And so he was then dismissed. And what he then did is he applied to get these unemployment benefits after there was a declination to prosecute. And it turned out what Justice Scalia said is, you know, so long as this is a criminal law which has equal applicability to all people, regardless of their religion and faith, uh, we can use it, notwithstanding the fact that it has. A disparate impact on people of certain kinds of religion. Uh, and to do this, he had to distinguish, and he did a very bad job of it, a couple of earlier presidents, Sherbert and Verna, having to do with release time, tough case, and then the Wisconsin against Yoda having to do with the Amish ability to educate their own children. But the net effect of his decision is that if a government agency wanted to tell Jewish or Muslim people uh, that in order for you to be in the army, you can't wear a headgear of one kind or another, um, uh, that would be perfectly okay because they imposed that on people who had no religion. So there was an immediate uproar left and right together announcing that this is just utterly untenable and a statute uh, called the Religious Preservation Act, a little bit more, um, which said we're going to use the Yoder and the Sherbert and Verna standard and try to get new trout. So that case is applies at the federal level. It's not a constitutional matter and so forth. This is, of course, not a federal case, and you're dealing with it. And what happened here is people wanted to come in and say, look, uh, you want to put this kind of restriction on these guys. You really have to justify it. And you can't do it uh, because the Catholic charities have taken in a number of people, and they're always willing to help out to place uh, uh, gay couples, children, or whatever it is, anybody else, to other organizations. So why are you doing all of this stuff? And it really was an effort to attack them. The way the decision came down was that the the way Justice Roberts said, he said, look, they had a lot of discretion on this in the individual case. And so I don't have to deal with Smith because that only is concerned with the general rule. And so therefore I can strike this down without having to face the main chance. But of course, it's the main chance that has bugged people now for 31 years uh, since Smith has been done. Uh, I think everybody who's serious about this understands that the accommodation test is better than the a neutrality test that's being put forward. This was a chance to set things right. Uh, There was a very thoughtful dissent in Smith by Harry Blackman, which has gone largely unnoticed in these particular cases. But you can get this better. And Justice Roberts is known for his incrementalism. And in this particular case, um, this is incrementalism so small that it gives the kind of snorting response that you get from Justice Alito. I agree with uh, uh, Alito in this particular case. I I don't think they should have done it. But this shows, that there is a middle three on the Supreme Court, uh, which is Roberts, Barrett, um, and Kavanaugh. The irony should be perfectly apparent uh, that the two Trump appointees turn out to join the moderate bloc. And it also will prove, I think, very important in another regard. Maybe John will comment on this. But I think watching this current Supreme Court with its 3-3-3 configuration, there's going to be a lot of air taken out of the steam to pack the court. Uh, given the fact that it seems to be tending centrist or leftist, notwithstanding the three Trump appointees.
0: John, how about that, both on the composition of the court and on this specific case?
2: I agree. I, I, I think, again, this is a, another example where you have Thomas, Salito, and Gorsuch uh, wanting to pursue a much more conservative, uh, aggressive conservative agenda here. You know, they basically say we want to overturn Smith. So if you're uh, you know, one of the people who supported Trump because of judicial appointments, you're getting a little worried. But you're like, why, is Barrett, why are Barrett and Kavanaugh voting with Chief Justice Roberts, you know, who many conservatives are very upset with for his uh, repeated decisions, You know, since, uh, at least since he upheld Obamacare twice, it was a deciding vote to uphold Obamacare twice. Uh, why are they just voting with him? I mean, if you're just putting up clones of Chief Justice Roberts, what was the point of all the you know political fighting to get both justices confirmed? Now, personally, I I don't think that's the case. I don't think Kavanaugh and Barrett are like Roberts. I think they're both new on the court, and so you know, in their first year or two on the court, I'm not probably not surprised that they're voting along with the chief justice. These cases are all being decided fairly narrowly. I don't think that they're going to be hiding around much longer next year when we have the uh, case involving abortion and then the New York state uh, f- uh, gun license case, I mean, gun gun permit case. I think in those cases, you're really going to put them to the test about whether there really is this three justice block in the middle or whether uh, Barrett and Kavanaugh are really going to start moving closer to the three more conservative justices and really create that working conservative majority that a lot of, I think, Trump supporters, uh, people were initially, uh, you know, suspicious about Trump. What they really supported him for was to put conservative judges on the court. In terms of this case, you know, I, I actually, um, you know, I'm sitting in Philadelphia right now, and you know, Philadelphia and the NCAA, they both have the dubious honor of losing at the Supreme Court nine to zero. Now. I mean, I'm used to. I I think they both should lose nine to zero. I I don't know whether it stands well for the NCAA to be sitting down there with the city of Philadelphia, who I think everybody knew was going to lose this case because their policy was so outrageous. But the actual, if you read the case carefully, the actual ground on which Chief Justice Roberts avoided the Smith issue was just I I just thought was not serious because what he said was the reason why this case uh, involves. you know, pointed discrimination, right, singles out religion um, rather than the generally applicable law that Scalia was talking about, was because there's a waiver provision that allows the government to waive the application of the non discrimination principle. But what maybe I missed this, but what I did not see in the case was any we're, we're, we're set back. That waiver provision is not aimed at religion particularly, it just says, you know, the city can waive the requirements of this non-discrimination requirement. What I didn't see anywhere, and I could be wrong, but I didn't see anywhere where um, the city of Philadelphia had actually had used that in a, discrim- in a way to discriminate against religion, against Catholics or against people who wanted to, who don't agree with gay marriage. And so just to say that there's this um, escape hatch in the law That doesn't make it an anti-religious law. That part just did not follow for me. So I think there's another example. It just reminds you very much of the other cases Roberts has written that have been very unsatisfying where he says, well, this is different to distinguish and to narrow the case. But the difference doesn't make any sense. It doesn't actually have any principle behind it. Yeah, you could say this case is different from the last case because this case involved $5 and the last case involved $4. But if there's no principle behind the difference, then what does it matter? And I feel I felt that way after I read this opinion. So the, I but let me just end with this. Sorry for going so the more that Roberts I think creates these unprincipled distinctions, I'm like glad because that means it's much more likely that Kavanaugh and Barrett will move away from him because they are not justices. Um, if you look at their backgrounds, we've forgotten the court who are persuaded by this kind of business, by this kind of common law. I can think of six factors rather than five that make this difference. They're both of them, I think, Trump the White Trump White House picked both of them because they ha- they were more principled and more principled originalists, in fact, than Roberts. So I'm disgusted.
1: No, he John Roberts has always been a person who trims his sails. Um, if you try to but go for on no,
2: for, but for no legal principle, no, uh, I, I no reason, a legal principle, right,
1: but. I mean, in that regard, there's another block of three, which is that he, Breyer, and Kagan are also tending to give to that kind of balancing, uh, which means, as is often the case, that Sotomayor sort of stands out as the one pure liberal voice on the court. Um, and I think there are at least several recent cases in which, in fact, she has been alone in dissent. Um, uh, look, this is fluctuating, but you, John, you never answered my larger question of what's this going to do to the pack the court
2: movement. Oh, oh, I think the pack the court thing is over. But it has nothing to do with the court. It's because of what else was going on this week, which is that the right this HR one bill failed. The effort to get rid of the filibusters failed. You know, Mansion and Senators Mansion and Cinema have you know, printed op eds saying they're going to keep the filibuster, support the filibuster. So that means all these crazy leftist ideas about adding DC as a state, about packing the Supreme Court, and so on. I think they're all now sitting at the bottom of Joe Manchin's dustbin in his office. <laughs>
1: So well, I agree. I think that's the most important development. It is ironic uh, that the Trump tirades, which largely contributed to having two Democrats win in the Georgia runoff election, we now have the two of them essentially standing rock solid on this point. Uh, Mansion did propose, I think, a very dubious uh, compromise for the Voting Act, which I don't think will go anywhere. Uh, my hope is that uh, this will keep strong under these circumstances. Uh, I do think in effect that the Biden administration has been very slow. And so just again, to divert, since it's an interesting topic, I'm going to ask John and Troy can answer too, moderator Epstein. Um, The pace of of judicial nominations confirmed, I think there've been two district court judges. Um, I don't see this speeding up very much.
2: Richard, first of all, I've been on many, many panels with you I have never seen you be the moderator. This disturbs I, I, me I'm, greatly. I'm, I'm, no I'm one's, inviting, no one's inviting no one's inviting Richard Epstein. No one's inviting Richard Epstein to a panel to hear you be the moderator. <laughs> I, I hate to disappoint times. you. I, I <laughs> and I, I don't expect moderator. you to be the moderator. You'd be the most biased moderator. It'd be like giving some team too many it's players. Sc- John, and no would be scandalous, scandalous.
0: <laughs> scandalous. I'm very but role the,
1: sensitive. Very role sensitive. As this, a moderator, I try to moderate. But, but anyhow.
2: Let me we respond go to your
1: back point to our about the Yeah, the, I mean, it's too you know, painful to listen to. My <laughs> character being besmirched by a good friend.
2: Let me answer. Let me answer your question though. So, You're I, I, it's a good, it's an interesting thing because it's you know one point you made. I agree with you is that all of the sort of maneuverings, machinations of Chief Justice Roberts in this era of attacks on the court um, by the well named Senator White House, for example, but all these things have. Uh, really little effect on the bigger political issues. He thinks he's a great politician and he's helping the court escape politics. Nothing he did had anything to do with the fact that the filibuster has survived, right? That involves real politicians in the Senate who are really know what they're doing and involves much bigger political issues than the size of the Supreme Court. And I also take your point, Richard, you're quite right. I mean, you're a 50-50 Senate um, with a tie-breaking vote held by Kamala Harris, the the uh, Biden administration can't go crazy on judicial appointments, and they can't rush through judges the way the Trump administration did because they're they don't really have a majority in the but Senate. I they think really there's the another Tide reason,
1: John. Senate. John, I think there's another reason, and then we should go back. I think amongst themselves, the latent moderate progressive split inside the Democratic Senate is still there, and trying to come up with a slate that will satisfy both wings simultaneously will require slates and compromises, and the difficulty with slates is if you put two conservatives or two centrists and two progressives there, uh, and one of the progressives doesn't get through, do you take the other two moderates and so forth. And so I think, in fact, there are also internal difficulties within the Democratic Party. Um, And so, I mean, I'm moderately optimistic, since I don't approve of most of their general policies, that you will see a number of district court judges go through, which is more than fine. Uh, But I think that there's going to be a real difficult question of trying to get through uh, some of the more activist uh, uh, liberal judges on the um, appellate level. And I think that there's resistance within the party. But we should go back to the Supreme Court, Mr. Moderator Seneca.
0: I have one more topic for you guys on the Supreme Court, interesting on the basis of what we've talked about before, because it's sort of the one exception to the principle we have thus far established, which is that the 6-3 conservative majority has thus far not turned out to be the steamroller that some people anticipated. Ah, there, was, there was a case decided today, however, that I can't recall whether we did on this show. I think Richard and I talked about it on The Libertarian, but this was the case about whether union organizers had a right to go onto private farmland in California for purposes of organization. That was a, a this was a 6-3 ruling along party lines that said no. So, Richard, walk us through the significance of this.
1: Well, I mean, this is a big case uh, because of the way in which it goes. Uh, What you did is California had a series of rules uh, that were put forward trying to regulate the way in which union representatives could appear in things that are covered by the Agricultural Relations Act. And by any standard, it was a kind of nice balance. They couldn't come in all the time. They had to restrict themselves to certain times of the year, certain places for certain reasons, and so forth. Uh, But all of these involve some kind of a physical entry. There is a long history in the labor law going back to 1945 in a case called Republic Aviation, in which the Supreme Court had held that, generally speaking, uh, in order to effectuate the purposes of the national Labor Relations Act, we're going to allow union representatives to come onto the premises against the will of the owner, so long as they don't disrupt internal operations. And this would seem to fall fairly squarely within that. Uh, there is, however, two cases that were warring in this circumstances. One of the cases, a case called Loretto, and it had to do with teleprompter boxes on the top of a roof. But it said that any permanent physical occupation, that's what the word said, is in fact a per se taking. And then there is the Penn Central case, which comes out, uh, which says for, quote, mere regulations, uh, it turns out we use a balancing test, which the way it has turned out, the government tends to win 95% of the time. Uh, so if you call, this a a kind of a regulation on access. It would be Penn Central, and they would win. But what the Supreme Court did is they forgot about the permanent word in Loretto, and they said these are physical entries, and it doesn't matter that it's temporary, and it doesn't matter that it's for limited purposes, and it doesn't matter that it disrupts the attitude. A trespass is a trespass is a trespass. Now that in essentially is a genuine switch, and what it does is it immediately brings into play every other kind of regulation in which people have been able uh, To enter. And the most important one of these is, is rent control, not discussed in this particular case, um, and was expressly exempted from the Loretto rule way back when Justice Marshall wrote this in about 1982 or so. Uh, that has been gone. Uh, but now, in effect, this thing may well turn out to lead to a genuine transformation in which. Uh, Uh, the basic rule of Loretto that a physical occupation, however large or small, on somebody else's property without necessity and without consent is going to be unconstitutional. So uh, this was the three in the center joining with the three on the right. Uh, Justice Breyer essentially started to say, let's balance again as he always does. And he's a Penn Central man. Um, I think that the potential to move things is really very, very great in this particular case, because given the thoroughness with which they struck down all the limiting conditions, it seems as though there's a genuine reorientation of the line between possession and mere regulation, which has dominated the law since 1978 when the Penn Central case came down.
0: John, uh, good news for you, obviously, because of your Northern California cannabis farm. But beyond that... (laughs) Your, your reaction to this case?
2: <laughs> well, first, I should disclose I'm on the uh, board of the Pacific Legal Foundation, which represented the um, property owner here. And uh, yeah, I think this is, as you as you point out, Troy, in your uh, introduction of the case, this is sort of the more old-fashioned conservative liberal split that I think a lot of conservatives were hoping for, where you saw unanimous court uh, not a I mean United Conservative Wing of six justices, uh, uh, you know, holding on, restoring some strength to certain kinds of rights, which have been had been ignored. Uh, in fact, have been downgraded by the New Deal Court and the Warren Court, such as economic liberties. Um, you know, we could uh, it. Uh, I, I join in the celebration. People who are listening or people who've read these cases, you know, should recognize that it was one young Richard Epstein who called for the reinvigoration of the Takings Clause in the early, early, mid-1980s, 40, this is what's so scary, Richard, 40 years ago, 40 years ago. And it took 40 years for him to see things come to fruition. Finally, they're listening to him. I mean, God knows what they're going to be doing 40 years from now. But forty you, you know. You, but look, Richard had the germ of this idea. In fact, Richard's idea is much more radical than this. So they have no idea what they've really bought onto. But you know, Richard wrote this book in the early eighties. You know, it's waved around by God. senator Biden. By- but you, you must have written it in nineteen eighty two, and then it took three years to get someone to publish this. Ah, uh,
1: the Harvard uh, University <laughs> Press and I had very long and interesting stories.
2: So, you know, it's waved around by Joseph, Joe, Senator Joe, then Senator Joe Biden to accuse people of not being fit for confirmation to the Supreme Court. But this idea was, you know, that uh, the taking clause had to be reinvigorated for many different reasons. And finally, you see a court in this case, uh, say, even Chief Justice Roberts here, who I was just criticizing for being wishy washy. He's not wishy washy here. And I read the opinion closely. I don't see a lot of wiggle room, uh, a lot of moderation here. They are saying, a temporary imposition by the government, right? Even for uh, you know just a few days a year, for three hours a day, just to allow for union organizing is a taking of your property rights. That is a that's an incredible, a clear statement. And so, what I hope it does, I, I think Richard, I think, I'm curious if Richard thinks this is going to happen. Is that right? The Penn Central test he mentioned, which was taken up again in this Lake Tahoe case in a five to four case um, where Justice Kennedy went with the liberal justices, um, adopted this unpredictable uh, multi-factor balancing test to consider when regulation goes too far and takes away the value of a property sufficient for the government to pay just compensation. I hope that this case is a clarion bell to get rid of all of that balancing and go back to clear, bright lines. And that's what this case does. It's just, it's a clear, bright line. If someone were to come on to your, if a private person would had the right to come onto your property every year for a certain number of days, for a certain number of hours, and just do whatever they felt like, they would have to pay you money for that. That would be an infringement of your property rights. And the government can't do the same, get away with doing the same thing and not pay you for it. And so I hope that bright line rule is the one that the court's going to breathe new life into with this new six justice majority.
1: There's also something else that needs to be done, uh, which has not been done, but I think Alito is sensitive to this in particular. Uh, These are takings for private purposes. That is, when you decide that you are going to let a union come on in order to organize, the primary beneficiary is the union. Uh, The union would always say that there are huge social benefits that come from union organization. To put it mildly, that is a disputed proposition. I think, in fact, all the externalities for the rest of the world are negative with union. monopolies and so on. And so the next question is, with some of these cases, will there be a reinvigoration of the public use clause that is parallel to that which seems to have with respect to the physical taking stuff? Uh, The whole law in this area is incredibly rickety. There was a case called Armstrong against the United States, which said you want to put a ship lien on a boat. uh, That's a taking because the material men's lien is a property interest. Now what happens is when you get to Penn Central, what you're doing is you're limiting the use of air rights. Well, that's also a partial interest in property. And what Justice Brennan did was engage in one of the great ploys of of all time, saying, God, there's no per se rule here. Everything is ad hoc. And what ad hoc means is that we're going to allow this to be sustained. But in its own sphere, uh, Penn Central is an air rights case that should be subject to the same analysis as the Union case and the same analysis as the Shipley's case. So I think there's enormous precedent here. Uh, you were certainly right that I was abused when I wrote my takings book. I can't begin to describe to you, but one particularly. And unshapable.
2: you loved every second of it. I,
1: I no, you don't <laughs> love it when you're sitting in a room with people who want to knife you. But there was one review that was not quite published in this form, which began, this shaggy dog will prevent, you know, will tempt every passerby to give it a kick. That's the way the thing
2: began. Wait, is this some old New York City proverb one learns growing up in the 50s? No, I no, never no. Heard This that was one my, my,
1: my late friend Joe Sachs, um, who decided that he would Oh, yeah, my, my colleague. Was not very Joe, good. Sachs
2: was, Joe Sachs was the chair of the appointments committee at Berkeley, who hired me. I
1: understand. Me. And, and he wrote some very important articles in many, many ways. But this did it. I mean, one has to understand in the 1980s when I wrote the Takings book. There was the first time since the Federal Society formed and so forth, a systematic challenge to the right against New Deal incrementalism, which essentially had dominated the world and was challenged in the 70s more by critical legal studies and a little bit by law and economics. Uh, But the thing that I did was to challenge it on constitutional ground and to do so on the basis of grand theory. And that provoked all sorts of very strong reactions because nobody likes to lose a constitutional monopoly. And the attitude that most of the people on the government left side had was, well, the law and economics guys, they're talking about corporate boards. Who cares about them? The critical studies guys, well, they're doing the kinds of things that we want. Uh, Maybe they'll move it. Maybe they won't. But we are running the center. And then this takings book comes along and declares on page 281, if you care, that the whole new deal is unconstitutional <laughs> and tries to live to tell the story. Well, as you say, John, it's 36 years. It's a long time to get even partial vindication. Nobody will ever acknowledge the book and an opinion that's being written. I, I fair to say that. Um, but you're certainly right that the ghost of Richard Epstein still alive and kicking it seems to have worked its way uh, through that particular uh, opinion.
0: <laughs> Let me have you guys finish up actually away from the court. I mean, one of, one of the biggest debates happening at the state level right now is about the teaching of critical race theory or to to avoid the semantics debate, ideas that are derivative of or sympathetic to critical race theory in public schools. And you are seeing efforts in a number of states to prohibit that. Florida's Board of Education voted unanimously to ban it. Looks like Texas is going to as well. And in some states like Idaho, The ban also extends to higher ed. So the question this is raising in some circles is whether the states are within their rights to do this or whether this is a First Amendment violation. So, John, what's your reaction to that question? And does higher ed versus K through 12 make a difference to how you answer it?
2: It's interesting what you're asking, Troy, because uh, you could say, well, um, is the government specifically passing a law forbidding the teaching of a certain subject or requiring the teaching of a certain subject, somehow first amendment violation. On the other hand, we've always recognized, and actually this is uh, very much discussed in the uh, opinion on the cheerleader Actually, uh, In fact, mm-hmm. um, doesn't it, the fact that a school has to make decisions about what courses are to be taken, what's in the course, um, how you're allowed to act in a course, the, um, Justice Alito has a you know, nice example of uh, you know, you, the school offers a course in French. Guess what? The language you're going to be studying the course is French. You know, guess what? You can't stand up on a chair and it's demanding that you start speaking in German, and so on. You know that, in fact, he says when you take that course, you agree that implicitly agree that the government, the state, here acting through the school, can in some way restrain you from speaking anything other than French. Well also as a
0: general matter you should be afraid of anybody who stands up on a chair and demands you speak in (laughs) German. (laughs)
2: Yeah. You know, there's a friend uh he passed away, a friend of ours, um who once said, "If you ever want to tell whether uh, you should vote for a law yeah. or a regulation or judicial opinion, try reading it out loud and with a German accent." <laughs>
0: <laughs> the, the great Mike Yellman.
2: Yes, yes, the who great Mike Uh Mike Yellman, a friend of uh, a friend of yours, President, you know, uh, old uh, conservative warrior of the old days, German. but uh, ended up as a professor at Claremont. Yeah, it was Wonderful a great man. Yeah, great, uh, a great, and and I think it's actually true. Try, you can't read Richard's book on takings with a German accent. It just doesn't make any sense. So yeah, uh,
1: yeah. I actually read it from time to time. It's an incredibly moderate
2: book. Oh, no, Richard, <laughs> you don't go back and read your own book I'm not going to go again. back no. and talk about
1: But to answer your question, John, in my final statement on this, you know, this has always been the problem. Schools have to teach. It's not just a question of consent. They always, since there's a monopoly, there's a question of whether or not it's an undue exaction, viewpoint discrimination, and so forth. So the consent argument proves too much. Uh, to me, uh, this is the flip side of can you ban the teaching of creationism in school? Um, where I think the answer to that question is yes. Uh, I am taking a more substantive view on that. When I see somebody coming forward and announcing that the purpose of the Declaration of Independence was to preserve slavery at the time when there were massive efforts at abolition throughout many northern states, it's just simply, I think, crazy. What I think you can certainly do is to uh, teach it in the sense that you take writings from that, even under the current laws, and examine them. What I don't think you should be allowed to do in a school—and I would certainly support a statute, which says that, you know, you have to go to the New York Times, take their reading materials and use them in class. I would regard that as a grievous social mistake. I think the movement is in general as intellectually bankrupt as anything that you could possibly expect. And I am certainly not a defender of everything that happened in the antebellum South. uh, But essentially, it's just gone a, a bridge too far. And I think that the public reaction to this is actually a very healthy thing. And I would hope that those people would start to think a little little bit more about themselves and ask very hard as to whether or not this grim prediction that the world is fine in 1619 bears any relationship to the truth. It misses all the complexity of the United States and all the history. And that's what you try to teach students to do is to understand the ambiguity and then to think their way to a tentative solution. And, you know, that's, I guess, what I'm about right now. Okay.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, fellas. I'm sorry we didn't get to Britney Spears' conservatorship. We'll do that next time. We're going to leave it here. Thanks, as always, to the two of you, to our producer, Scott Emmergut, and to all of our wonderful listeners. Remember, to do us a favor and rank the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, the faculty lounge is officially closed. Great.